You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are walking on the wild side and laughing in the face of danger all through the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, finding out what's so great about the waterhole as we try to find out what exactly has been shaped by these movies in the kingdom of our imagination. Hopefully, along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun, too. Today, we're traversing the savannah of The Lion King, the 32nd movie in the canon, and the highest-grossing traditionally animated film of all time. And my co-host, as always, as far as brains go, he got the lion's share, is Dr. Michael Farmer. And happy anniversary, Michael. Our podcast is three years old today. Is that true? Well, at the time of release, yeah. Maybe not today as we're recording. Happy anniversary, Josh. I didn't get you anything. (laughs) I was hoping you were going to get me a real microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, to help us celebrate and explore this film, we have a special guest, if you would like to introduce him, Michael. Sure. Uh, Last week we had, or last month, we had uh, Tim Rhodes from the Night Cheese podcast on. Tonight we have his co-host on Night Cheese, Stephen Sandridge. How's it going, Stephen? Hey, guys. Doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Steven is probably my oldest friend with whom I'm in regular contact. Uh, same. Yeah, and, I would and, agree. Yeah, and Josh, you're number two. So this is a this is a blast from the past. Wow, right. I can't believe I'm number two. Yeah, that really shows you how difficult it is to be friends with me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got it. We've got uh, over a decade here, so that's good. Josh, we've got well, almost two decades. I well, I know we're getting close to that. That's true. That's very true. Almost two decades. That's crazy. That's just crazy. That's almost as old as this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, it's a wonder our friendship has endured. I don't know that it would ever be able to be started in the same medium that it was, what, 20 years ago. Michael and I met in a chat room. CCM uh, chat. Yes. (laughs) The official (laughs) chat room for CCM magazine. (laughs) (laughs) It's wow. it's a wonder we were friends. I was um, I, I was I was a very um, hard defender of Third Day, probably in the lowest point of their quality of their career. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, so it, it, it it's a wonder that Michael tolerated me. Yeah, that is amazing. I do associate you with Third Day. Yeah. <laughs> do do you really? That, 
I do. I associate. Yeah, I do because you're you're a pretty uh, hardcore defender of them, even when uh, I knew you. So yeah, I was. You know, I think that dropped off not long after I left Tacoa. I think sometime after that, I'm like, okay, well, well, all right. What else is there? Yeah. The, the yeah. best thing Third Day ever did was record that cover of Jacob's Troubles, uh, These Thousand Hills. I feel like I feel like way more people know that song now because of Third Day than ever would have known it before. And I really like yeah. uh, Jacob's Trouble, who uh, uh, you know, a pretty obscure Christian rock band from Cherokee County, Georgia, uh, f- from hey. which I'm uh, podcasting tonight. Nice. It all comes full circle. There you go. Steven, I don't know if you know this, but one of my ideas for what to do after we finished before they were live, like after we finished the Disney canon, was to go through all the CCM magazine covers and talk about the <laughs> Well, whenever Third Day comes up, give me a call. I'll be glad to join you again. <laughs> Particularly uh, the era where Mac Powell had the dyed blonde hair. That was um, that was not a great look. It wasn't. It really wasn't. <laughs> uh, and I feel like he knew that, too, in retrospect. It seemed to, but maybe he didn't. Anyway, that was the album where he went from trying to sound like Darius Rucker to trying to sound like Eddie Vedder. That is correct. Yes. Ah, oh, boy. Yeah. Well, before people forget what podcast they tuned into, <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about The Lion King today, so <laughs> we should probably move that direction. There we go. Thanks for steering us, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Great movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty good stuff the certainly the best animation we've seen so far like uh, all the movies that, that we've watched the last five or six months have been really amazing animation this is better than all of them uh there's only one scene that has i think kind of tacky 3d animation and it's the slow motion fight between simba and scar toward the end but for mm. the most part the, the animation including the 3d stuff is really really breathtaking yeah. Are you talking about the? Uh, are you are you just talking about 3D animation in general, or like the? Did you watch the updated 3D version that they put that they released? In? Oh no, the no, I did not watch that. The one that's like okay. the shot for shot remake. No, 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 not the, <laughs> not the live action one. But at, um, let's see, I I I had this here on Wikipedia. Oh goodness, I so, watched this I'm, on Disney Plus. Do you think it was the? Okay. Did did I watch a different version than the one I saw I when I was a kid? I, don't I think, also watched I don't think so. Before. That's the same one I watched too. Yeah. Um, I think you're watching this the the original there. Yeah. In 2011, The Lion King was converted to 3D for a two week limited theatrical reissue and subsequent 3D Blu-ray. Release. Oh no no this wasn't this wasn't 3D but they used the the CGI as they have in the last couple movies but I thought it was right. much better done here. Yes mm. yes. The wildebeest okay. scene is the big use oh. of, of uh, CGI. And I, I think it's pretty seamless for computer-generated yeah. animation from 1994. Yeah. yeah, it ages really well, I mean, compared to some of the other things, like the Nintendo 64 or something, you know. Like <laughs> it ages really well. Yeah. I totally agree, Michael, that this is the best we've seen, and I think it's the best we're going to see. I mean, we have a couple more in the traditional animated films uh, before they switch over to... to uh, all computer animated but i feel like they really topped out here <laughs> like this is a really and maybe it's just the nostalgia talking we'll, we'll have to look as, as we get to the next couple films but i i feel like this is really really high quality animation and, yeah, I think and, yeah go ahead Stephen. i'm sorry sorry i was just gonna say i think it's a real testament to uh 
the quality of everybody who worked on it too, because um, I was watching this um, additional feature on Disney plus this afternoon that was really more about transitioning it to the Broadway show, but they were talking about a lot of the animation and apparently it was Disney's entire B team of animators that did this because all their a game um, animators were dedicated to Pocahontas. Oh my gosh. And yeah. And and Katzenberg are our old foe. Uh, was was in the bag for Pocahontas, right? To the point mm-hmm. where he wanted to cancel this movie when people started leaving Pocahontas for this one. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, and this, so, I mean, this is uh, just what they were able to all to put together uh, was just phenomenal. And I think, um, <clears throat> I'll say this and let you guys take back over here. Um, but the, um, one of the things that really got to me, I was listening to y'all's episode last week, uh, or last month, sorry. Uh, on Aladdin and sort of that transition to, you know, more recognizable celebrity voice casting. Um, And this, this one to me, even though I think they're, they're continuing to sort of lean in that direction, they felt, I felt like they did such a good job, even with the celebrity voice casting the right kind of character, right kind of actor for that role. You know, you have James Earl Jones as Mufasa and um, even, even though I wouldn't, call them necessarily top tier celebrities, but Nathan Lane and Ernie Savella's Timon and Pumbaa like work really well together and like it kind of enhances the character instead of um, just saying, Oh, I'm listening to these voices of people that I recognize from this TV show I watch or something. Even though of course, when I saw this in 1994, I thought of Ernie Sabella chiefly as Mr. Carosi, Mr. Carosi from Saved by the Bell. I had initially saw him on an episode of Perfect Strangers before I watched um, Saved by the Bell. And don't ask me why that one episode of Perfect Strangers stuck with me. But I guess he's just a he just makes an impression on you. I don't know. He's also the guy, the naked guy reading the paper in the subway in that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. If you've ever if you've ever really wanted to see as much of Ernie Sabella as you can see. <laughs> oh, Mr. Carosi. And also, I said all that. And I completely overlooked my favorite, probably my favorite character in the film uh, was Robert Guillaume as Rafiki. Yeah. uh, Who was just just great. I mean, you know, he's not all over the movie, but every scene he's in, even as a kid and then even now as an adult, I just pay closer attention to. That's such an interesting character, too. It's it's not one I paid a lot of attention to when I was a child, but rewatching the movie today, he he's this like shaman from another planet right i mean he yeah he he's very interesting and it's a performance that could have been stereotypical and maybe kind of leans into that in the in the scene where he somehow knows karate yeah Um, the bruce lee yeah (laughs) but but for the most part i think it's a really interesting um performance both by guillaume and by the animators who who kind of bring him to life physically yeah his um yeah his exchange with simba you know they're you know, toward towards the end, it's just um, oh man, it's just it's my favorite sequence in the movie, and like his, the way he can like teeter between playfulness and and you know sincerity, um, and still kind of communicating the truth of the moment and stuff without without being so um without being so corny. It's really hard to be sincere without being corny or in a Disney movie like too jokey, uh, and stuff, and and he um. Uh, he just played it really well. Yeah, he really brings uh, 
true some true wisdom there too about learning from your your past and stuff you know like it's like you said it's very sincere and it it works it works i think beyond the movie i think probably part of the reason that resonates with you and with with so many people is because it is um you know there's actually some powerful truth being spoken there which by the way i know you guys don't talk about the live versions but i couldn't help myself and i watched it today and that is a line and a lesson that they totally didn't even include in the new one who plays him in the new one, Stephen? Um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, but he plays Black Panther's father uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Gotcha. Um, Black Panther anyway. is basically a remake of The Lion King. There's a lot of that, yeah, it, it, and maybe that's why I love Black Panther so much too. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's just a great story. There's, you know, you got Shakespeare and you've got this sort of Old Testament narrative a little bit, like a, your sort of Moses Josephy kind of story. And um, I don't know, it's 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 timeless, I guess. And I always thought of this as a kind of children's version of Hamlet, and it is. I mean, you, you've got the the uncle uh, yeah. killing the the father king, and then the prince having to take revenge. Although uh, what happens here is a little different than what happens in Hamlet. But there's a lot of other Shakespeare here. Um, yeah. There's there's some Henry the Fourth with uh, Timon and Pumbaa as uh, as Falstaff. There's some Macbeth. Uh, there's it's it's really like a grab bag Shakespeare um, for kids, and uh, mm. it's a lot of fun because of that. I think. Also, I assume Timon is called Timon because of the Shakespeare play *Time of Athens*. Hmm. I have no idea. I don't know what the uh, etymology of Timon's name is. <laughs> my, my wife, when she was uh, eight years old, when saw this movie for the first time, announced to her parents that it was just Hamlet, uh, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about her. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing that yeah. is really amazing yeah it took somebody telling me that it was hamlet for me to get it and i still don't know my shakespeare very well at all i'm not catching any of these references that you're dropping here, I'm, Michael. So. I'm terrible at shakespeare but i will say i was enough to, to walk out of that at a, at a later stage in life being like this really feels like there's a lot of shakespeare in here it's just the nature of the story you know how um, many people our age saw or read hamlet in college and thought Oh, <laughs> it's the Lion well, King. Yeah, probably as many people as read the Old Testament in our undergrad and thought, oh, that's where that caveman's call lyric came from. I was looking up. Um, so a weird thing to me is I was sitting here trying to think about the first time that I saw this and um, I didn't actually see this in the theater. Um, I had seen all the other big Disney animated films, you know, from whatever was appropriate for my age to see it up until here. And I actually didn't see that for this one being the most uh, box office generating title. I never saw it until it was on video. And um, I was sitting here thinking I was in that sort of adolescent uh, transitional stage where I thought I was too old for Disney movies. Um, And I'm sitting here looking at other films that came out that year. And um, this only comes to mind because um uh, the episode of Night Cheese we just did, we, I talked about a few Westerns. Uh, we were doing a Father's Day uh, episode and talking about my dad. And there was a um, an adaptation of the film Wyatt Earp with uh, Kevin Costner that came out that summer. And I remember being – I must have been 12 maybe, I guess, when this came out. And I saw that in the theater, but not The Lion King, which is just weird to me. Oh, but I remember man. Seeing, yeah, right? Isn't that movie <laughs> um, four hours long? It felt four hours long. Um <laughs> It was no tombstone, I'll tell you that. Um, it's it's sort of companion film uh, in that two-year period. But um, but no, I remember, yeah, really being impacted by it when I saw it the first time, just thinking like, 
Which this is silly because Disney has, this sounds morbid, but always been in the habit of killing a parent. But, um, or having someone be orphaned at, at some point. But um, yeah, that moment of Mufasa's death is is a real watershed moment for a generation of kids, I think, you know, experiencing something truly traumatic in a movie. Uh, it feels like a, a widely referenced moment. Right. It, it, you know, it's it's precedent in the, in the canon is Bambi's mom, but I think this is much more brutal than Bambi's yeah. mom, just because Scar comes along and immediately makes Simba feel like it's his fault that his right. father's died. Plus, it lasts longer, and it happens yeah. on screen. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys know the Katzenberg story? Uh-uh. It was originally a shorter sequence, and Katzenberg came in and watched it and yelled, pointing to his eye, Do you see tears on my face? Wow. So they had to extend it. Oh my, that's, I don't even know what that is. That, that that's, <laughs> that's impactful. Although if I can share a companion piece, Katzenberg story, which I just learned today, the um, sequence toward the end where Timon and Pumbaa are trying to create a diversion for the hyenas and they sing that impromptu song about Pumbaa being a tasty treat and all that stuff. Um, apparently Nathan Lane's line of what do you want me to do? Dress and drag and do the hula was improvised and that, led into that entire sequence so they put all that together and play it and show it for katzenberg and they do it and like it's already produced into the initial cut that's going to be shown to the first test audience and he's like that sounds great but we need to make it staying alive instead and wanted them to do it with a complete like travolta disco bgs um rendition <laughs> which i don't know made me complete I, I did a double take just hearing that it you, was um you, you really see where dreamworks <laughs> came up with all their ideas you really do like, yeah it's, it's an amazing like uh yeah glimpse glimpse behind the curtain into into how dreamworks works <laughs> <laughs> and we need mike myers and eddie murphy in here stat no. um <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's pretty interesting. I, if I can, um, I don't know. I, I sometimes when we when when I'm podcasting now that um, night cheese has gotten back together, I kind of fall into old habits. So please don't allow me to monopolize conversation. I feel uh, uncomfortable of just coming into you guys's deal here. But um, I wanted one thing that I think that really um impacted me this time was watching sort of um. And maybe it's just being an adult or being a parent this time around. But um, how good of a – I mean, James Earl Jones is great. But um, even in the animation, how well they treat Mufasa and how well they sort of intentionally make him a good king that respects the world around him. And how Scar's Scar's look at the world – is just completely like the antithetical. Like it's, it's very inward focused. Like Mm -hmm. give me, give me what is due respect me for how great I am. And, um, there is uh in the opening sequence, I never noticed it until today, but, um, in the circle of life sequence, which is just, it still gives me goosebumps today. And I'm almost 40 hearing that song and the choir and, and just that entire sequence. And, um, when Mufasa, when when Zazu, the bird, lands at his feet and bows, Mufasa nods back at him. 
um, which is something that didn't make it to the live cut, which really disappointed me. Um, it's an, an acknowledge. It's, it's very subtle, but it's an acknowledgement. You know, it's it's not a it's not a hey, I am entitled to your to your bowing. It's an acknowledgement. And then Rafiki shows up to come see Simba as he's born, and he he embraces Rafiki. He gives him a hug uh, before he comes in, which is something that Simba replicates at the end before he's about to take his his place. Right. Um, which is just such a just just great mirroring there in those moments and um the where you have scar where you have pretty much just ever scars whole mo is and be prepared you know pretty much um which for as evil as he is and as self and self uh self-involved as he is and um narcissistic as he is uh might be my favorite disney villain song ever really yeah because i, I don't, remember really loving that song and I, I i haven't seen this movie since high school i'm sure uh-huh. um and and the the scene with, that it's in is really great but the song doesn't really have a melody and i uh, i i i found it to be the weakest song in the movie mm-hmm. uh, i like to be prepared but before we get to it i want to go back to what steven was just talking about with the the mirroring things because i think I, you you bring some really good things into there um, Stephen, and I think it especially mirrors with um, Simba's song of "I just can't wait to be king." Yeah, because basically, and I just can't wait to be king. He's 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 like Scar is that kid grown up without he's ever a baby Scar. Anything. Yes, yeah, and like without ever learning the lessons, um, because Simba learns the lesson of like you mean a king isn't just doing whatever you want mm-hmm. from his dad, right? And actually, he almost misses the lesson because he's like, there's more <laughs> yeah, in this right. sort of like, I mean, I think it's a really like telling and sweet scene at the same time, you know, like, I mean, he's just obviously this naive kid and he's thinking there's even more than getting everything that you want. And and uh, Mufasa has to teach him at that point about how we're all connected, which, you know, is the reason why he bows to or not bows, but acknowledges uh, um Gosh, I just lost his name. Yeah, Zazu, thank you. Zazu and, you know, hugs Rafiki and, um, whereas, you know, Scar has Zazu in a cage. And in the song, uh, Simba's hope is to just get rid of Zazu, you know? In that mm-hmm. case, you're fired, you know? Like, uh, I don't know. I think there's some really interesting mirroring things and happening how there. Well, can you juxtapose Just Can't Wait to Be King to like part of your world, like Ariel's song? And then forgive me, what's Belle's song? Is it just called Belle? It's just called Belle. Belle, okay. Like all three of those songs are about <clears throat> your protagonist wanting more out of life than what they have. But is it just me that Simba's is definitely the brattiest out of the three? Um, well, it's the least emotional, or is it, right? I mean, yeah. the, the Belle the bell song and, and Ariel's song, you're with them. Because you you recognize that you all have these dreams, but you're not going to be king, so it's hard to really share in Simba's excitement. So yeah, yeah. You, you feel him as kind of a brat, even though it's a catchy song. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was that or if I just already had an axe to grind against Jonathan Taylor Thomas um, at that age. <laughs> um, that was a perfect casting, though. He 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 plays an obnoxious. He played an obnoxious little brat really well. Um, he's, he's better than um, Broderick as the adult Simba, I think. Yes, yes, he was Broderick. Uh, I mean, listen, he didn't tear, he didn't take away from the movie, but he right. sure didn't add to it either. Right, I think that's probably yeah. the best you could say for him is he's not distracting. Yeah, um, except for one scene for me, and it's, maybe it's the Southerner in me, but when they're all laying down at the grass, um, and Pumbaa says something like, I ate like a pig, and he goes, Pumbaa, you are a pig. He says it in the most New York accent, um, 
like the the I don't know if it's his cadence or something, but it like took me back to every um, New York uh, college dorm mate that lived on my hall at the time. I, I think um, we all know who you're thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody listening to this will know what you're talking about, but I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, it's you know, it, it, maybe he's just picked up the cadence from uh, Timon and Pumbaa, both who have inexplicable New York accents. That's true. Yeah, because Nathan Lane does it a little bit himself as well. Um, <laughs> I was going to say too before we get away too far away from it, talking what Josh was saying about you know Mufasa and trying to impart those lessons onto Simba and Simba not really getting it. Simba has a real Adam moment um, when they're looking over the entire land and Simba, and Mufasa's like, all of this is yours. And he looks at the one place that he can't have. And he's like, what about that? <laughs> uh, and immediately goes there. Um, so, you know, original sin and whatnot, I suppose. But Yeah, that's a great point, too. I mean, I think there is really a lot of... Um, uh, theology in this movie actually more so than a lot of the movies that we've seen so far and i think that is that is one of them you know like you have everything and everything is good and uh yeah immediately but what's in that shadow place (laughs) (laughs) an elephant graveyard oh um you know and the we talked about the traumatization of uh, mufasa's death too and i think one of the things that hit me really hard about that Maybe even more so in retrospect is um I, I don't know like um like I lost my dad probably it's close to close to fifteen years ago now but still there's something that you can't unsee whether this happens in life or in death of when if you have that kind of relationship with a parent especially a a boy with his father um this sort of implicit assumption of invincibility um for any number of years. And the moment you see them in this vulnerable weakness that can't be remedied, sure. um, is is just is just there. And um, I thought they did a good job of. Um, and this was just a. I was. I'm such a nerd. I, I took notes last night because I wanted to uh, earn my place at the table here. Um, there was a. Um, I thought it was a nice touch when Mufasa rescues Simba from the elephant graveyard that he managed to take down all three hyenas with one swing. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't have to do that, you know, but I was just like, man, <laughs> like, okay, he didn't come to play, you know? And, um, and so just that, that moment of heroism and stuff. And, and um, I think it's a great, uh, a great lesson in fatherhood too, to take away from now being on the other side of that to explain to your children being brave doesn't mean you go looking for trouble. And the quote that really stuck out to me was, I'm only brave when I have to be. Right. Um, which is, uh, you know, trying to set that, set that perspective for, uh, for Simba of what it means to, to be a king. Yeah. There's so many great Mufasa moments. And I think a lot of them come out of that. He takes what Simba is saying seriously, but he recognizes it as a misconception and uses it as a chance to correct that misconception. You know, like this, there, you have this misunderstanding about what bravery is. You have this misunderstanding about what being a king is. Let me, let me come alongside you and, and show you the right way rather than just telling you you're stupid or shaming you or whatever, which is all the things that Scar does with them, right? Like, yeah. Whenever, whenever Simba's facing a misconception around Scar, Scar like digs into that and makes it a shameful thing. Whereas Mufasa always takes him, you know, seriously, 
but also corrects him. Yeah. I think there's a lot of grace in Mufasa's rule too, because this time around I felt like I feel like Mufasa always knew that he didn't trust Scar, but he gave him enough grace to be able to live with the rest of the lions. Um, but was just kind of keeping an eye on him. Um, this sort of tense, uh, tense relationship they have, because even when, even when Scar mildly threatens him to his face, he's like, Oh, do you want to do this now? And then the Scar just, you know, immediately backs down because that's, that's who he is. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, the, the moment there in his, his sort of, um, you know, it seems like Mufasa and trying to teach this to Simba, who I think comes around to see it. Um, and Scar obviously is the antithesis of this, but is like he he knows that whether whether he is the predator or the prey or whatever it is, he has a place in the world, and so does everything else. And he respects its existence to be there, um, the circle of life, if you will. Well, that's the the weird kind of conservative viewpoint of this movie is that ecosystems and societies evolve to have a particular balance and you have to maintain that balance even though it means there's a hierarchy that is going to keep some people living in the elephant graveyard you know Mm. it's it's not a message you get from a lot of children's movies, to, to be yeah. quite honest. I mean, t- typically the message in children's movies is, you know, be yourself and you can be a star or whatever. Right, and, yeah. And, and this is more like, yeah, uh, you might be a zebra and your role in the circle of life may be to be ripped apart by a lion. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's just kind of the way things are. And to 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 do it any other way would, would to, to have society completely collapse. It's it's a weird conservative, even reactionary, um, message. Yeah, I don't I don't fully know what to do with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I wonder if the if the new one changed that any um, just because of the the changing politics of well I mean let's be let's be clear what we're talking about the change the changing racial politics of America I, I mean you yeah. can see how an argument like the one Mufasa makes could be used to promote things like police brutality, you know, and, and right. to say that the people, um, people protesting for Black Lives Matter, for example, are destroying society because there's this delicate balance and it has to be maintained, even if the hierarchy also has to be maintained. So I wonder, I wonder what they did with that in the, in the new, much blacker um, well, live action version, right? I mean, the, the main cast in that movie is black, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a black Harry Potter. Right. Like, I mean, just like you know, they, they pulled from all, and I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. Sure. They pulled all their name brand talent from 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 that industry for it, and some of it really worked, and and some of it did not. Um, but uh, in that scene, that particular scene where in the animated version he's saying, you know, everything exists in a balance, the yellow beat the grass, you know, all that other stuff. Um, they retain some of that, but also they add in some dialogue from Mufasa talking about a good king is not concerned with what he can take, but only with what he can give. Uh-huh. Uh, and they juxtapose that against the hyenas by saying that hyenas just like – and Scar, too, that during that, that middle part of the movie where he's taken over is that part of the reason the ecosystem is destroyed is because they're not hunting out of need. They're hunting out of greed. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's why all the resources get depleted and stuff, which, I mean, 
felt a little midichlorian-ish to me to make a Star Wars reference, like a, just some unnecessary explanation um, to make the movie longer. But, um, but, but I think, I think that's, 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 is that is that that's not completely absent in this that's right. animated version, right? Like, well, I mean, they, the, they say the, that everything's gone. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I don't remember it's them. obviously in ruins. I mean, Timon says, wow, look at your fixer upper. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it, what it reminded me of, Michael, like you've brought it up several times in, in the show, because I feel like this is a common theme uh, in some of these Disney movies is, um, you know, the Fisher King, when uh-huh. the king is gone, the land suffers, you know, and um, I mean, you see that in Happy Valley in the Mickey and the Beanstalk uh, is the one that I'm remembering right now. Uh, but I know we've mentioned it somewhere else before also. But when, so when, kinda, you have a, when you have a wicked leader, your your land is going to fall out of balance. And I don't know, the streets might get racked with protests, for example. Well, yeah. <laughs> because you have a leader who is interested in taking and not giving anything. Well, yeah, he's only concerned with his self-image and his whole motivation to get into power in the first place was because he felt entitled to be thought of as a great person. Right. right. Um, or a great lion, let's be clear. We're, yeah, a gra- sorry, we're just sorry, talking yes, about great the movie. Lion. Right, exactly. Um, you know, it's like, uh, it's, you know, it was like when Zach Morris ran for class president. You know, he just um, he just wanted to do it to see if he could, you know, to get a free trip. Um, and, you know, he's uh, he, has, he has no interest in the actual job. Like, he's... Um, it, it, which is, you know, managing the people and, and meeting the needs of the people. Um, as a matter of fact, he, he delegates that, which I mean, I know in nature, lionesses do do the hunting, but like he's, he's just constantly refusing to take accountability for his actions, refusing to demonstrate any leadership. Um, and he is only, and he's appealing to the most rejected part of society, um, that that are viciously, you know, um, that, that are vicious takers and, and consumers of things to to take over, uh, to to use them in part to take over and treating them as if they're just equal um, on the equal uh, part of the circle, I guess. I don't know. I mean that that is the if if we're taking this as kind of a political allegory, which obviously it is, and if we're taking it as a, a conservative viewpoint, which I think it is. It does. Um, it does require the person in charge to think primarily about what he's ruling rather than about himself. And so I, I think I think there's probably you could at least argue a hypothetical version of hierarchy that allows that. Um, I'm you know th- th- that doesn't mean you have to defend every single hierarchy that comes along. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of it more in the the sense of like stewardship. You know, um, which I, mean, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't fully thought this through, so I'll probably stumble around. But you like there, like you said, it's not defending the hierarchy necessarily. Like you could maybe look at it a different way, as far as like there's a there's you know a you know if the if the lions are 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 men in this in this story, you know, like um, rather than you know, all creatures are men. <laughs> like all creatures are men kind of gets you down that dark path of like who are the people in the in the in the elephant graveyard. But mm-hmm. if it's the lions if it's lions who are mankind, um then there there's more of a stewardship of creation uh type scenario going on there. Yeah, I, and I that's a that's a much better way to, to read it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do get in trouble whenever you have an allegory where uh 
different races represent different types of people. Right. Well, let, let's let's not fully ignore it though, because if you can't see the Nazi imagery and be prepared, then oh, I don't know yeah. what you're watching. <laughs> yeah, it's like straight um, out of Triumph of the Will, isn't it? They got yes, the, the goose stepping hyenas. Uh huh. Man, it was. Oof. Yeah. Um. Talking about. Um, oh, well, was, um, you know, getting started to the middle of the movie where it sounds like everything. Uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, also was really impressed upon me a couple of brief scenes and lines that really um, propel like the hope for redemption um, and things. Like when when Nala shows up again, um, there's this line that's uttered from from what I can tell twice in the movie. Um, once by Scar and once by Nala, and once like right after right after Mufasa is murdered and you know Simba is racked with guilt and everything, and Scar says, "What would your mother think?" And that drives him, you know, further to motivate him to run away. But Nala is overjoyed to find that he's alive, and she says what would your mother think (laughs) to know that he's not dead? And like, he is scared at that moment, but the way they've animated adult Simba at that moment, he's like, you think that she would be happy to see me again? Like, it's this almost prodigal return moment in in his face. Like, you think I could go back? Like, he still wrestles with that for a little bit longer. Um, But then um, one of my, one of my favorite moments, which is, it's just strange because it's so brief. It's not very, it's certainly not articulated. It's just, you know, joyful screaming and rejoicing, but it's Robert Guillaume, man. It's like when, when his fur makes it all the way across the landscape and he catches and, and he, you know, the prophet, the shaman, whatever you want to call him, realizes that hope is not dead and his just, just celebration. Like it felt like a really, weird animal kingdom version of a, of the apostles finding out that Christ has risen. Oh, you me. know what I, like, you know what I thought of since you're going to, since you're going to bring the Bible up, I thought of uh, Simeon, sure. you know, who, who, mm-hmm. who meets the infant Christ in the temple and uh, says essentially uh, I can die happy now having, having, uh, having seen the sign you've given to all the people. Yeah. I, that, that's, that's who he reminded me of. Uh, so yeah, good. it, it I mean, is. It's it's hope, right? It's someone who's yeah. waited for a long time. Yeah, and, and I mean, if you want to take that, you know, I, I would say, you know, a, a step further, like the the way the rest of the film plays out, it's like it is Simba coming to sort of make all things new again. Um, you know, there uh, you talk about we we talked about sort of the hierarchy of things and the order and and Scar's like disinterest and 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 maintaining that balance, and it's almost as if the land itself rebels against him. Like once it has robbed him, they have robbed it of its order. That moment where he has Simba up against the cliff and it seems like things are going wrong is when lightning strikes that tree. And then it goes from not only from, from lush to barren, but from barren to fire. And it, it's not really until, you know, things are made right again, that the rain comes. And then of course, you know, you see the segue into the next scene where things have been made right again, but the, the rain is washing things away and um, he's, he's taking his place and he's finally fully embraced his, his uh, purpose, I guess. Yeah. And I want to talk more about those, their elements. So I think, I think we should come back to that, but before we get too far away from that Rafiki moment, in the tree there was another thing in there that i really loved and that's you know he takes the 
the melon or whatever and he holds it up and cracks it in the same way that he does at the beginning and uh-huh. and but then he just takes a bite out of it and <laughs> <laughs> and it's really funny but i think there's also like something um really cool about like finding the the sacred and the ordinary and the way that we use like our sacraments all come out of like daily objects like right. <laughs> it's you know it's water until it's baptismal water or it's bread and wine until it's the body and blood of christ and so i, I don't know i don't know if you guys have anything to say about that but I, I was really interested in the way that he as this sort of uh priestly or shaman type figure um is using the same same things um, it is a really but, cute little subversion i didn't always catch it but that is actually a really really neat little it's a neat little quirk to his personality already because like he is somebody like he's i don't know who to compare him to i feel like i've met people like that uh not like that's gonna sound weird coming out like that but but like men of faith who are incredibly quirky personalities and and if it wasn't for that faith dictating who they are you know what kind of unorthodox individual would they be but that married to the um to the foundations of what they believe sort of instructing how they how they look at the world and how they teach lessons to people around them and that kind of stuff it's like you still get that you get that sacred and that the sacred and the silly you know um and yeah i i, I like that about him as a character it made me think of the hebrew priests in the old testament who you know the 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 bull gets sacrificed to god and then part of it gets burned up but the priest gets to eat the rest of it you know like it's it's there's a there's real practical uh components of the sacrifices it's it's how the priest and his family get to eat and i've, I've been thinking about it because we're reading the odyssey for season four of the core curriculum and it happens over and over and over again in the odyssey telemachus or odysseus will be traveling to some um foreign locale and the first thing they'll do is uh they'll have this feast which is part welcoming of the stranger and part sacrifice to the gods and and you know there's not really a distinction between those two things so i think the first time we see the the weather sort of (laughs) play a part in this movie and we see it several times throughout as you already started sharing some of them Stephen. like is in that very opening sequence when uh he holds you know baby he presents simba to uh the animal kingdom and the light of the sun breaks through the cloud and shines right down on pride rock yes and so we see very early on that there's this sort of um this is my son (laughs) yeah exactly yeah It, it is exactly that sort of um theophany moment if that's the right word it is yeah i mean obviously it is very intentional um but and the and this sort of thing and you and you do see the sky open up again at the end i mean the light doesn't come down because it's you know it's at nighttime but it's this moment of i mean it is kind of like that like it's this moment like mufasa is almost present again for his son's coronation you know mm-hmm. reminding him to remember and um you know just sort of that last little nudge like i'm glad that you have not uh yeah, yeah, I'm glad that you haven't forgotten. Which again, we talk about theology kind of being all over this. Like, I don't know, at least for a believer, like what could hit harder in that scene where Mufasa appears to Simba when he's having that moment of doubt and Rafiki has brought him back and he says, you've forgotten me. And he says, you've forgotten who you are. So you have forgotten me. Um, which just is, feels like a very convicting, uh, line to hear. Um, at least for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that moment too, because uh, so my one of my uh, colleagues here, 
uh, in China. He calls this moment, um, so I wrote down his quote because I thought it was really good. He says it's um, uh, one of the, it's the theologically unintentionally awesome Disney, Disney moment ever. <laughs> it's the most <laughs> theologically unintentional awesome Disney moment ever. And um, it's when uh, he, Rafiki is asking Simba to look into the water to see Mufasa. And it's the real, like, it's the Imago Day is <laughs> like right there, you know, like, um, he has seen the image of God in himself. It's actually, it's amazing because I don't know if you guys have seen the, the film Silence, um, which is, it's a hard movie to watch, so I don't recommend it, but it's, uh, um, about Japanese missionaries who are, sorry, missionaries to Japan, um, basically going through a crisis of faith and, and apostasy. But, um, there's a moment in that movie where the missionary looks into the water and sees uh, an icon of Christ reflected back at him in the water. And I couldn't help but think like, wow, that's the same. It's the same moment almost, you know, like he's being asked to remember who he is. um, And, and he's seen the image of Christ reflected back at him in the water. It's it's, uh, really powerful. And it's so, yeah, it's so good. I mean, that, that, and, and I would ascribe more, yeah, to that, to what you just said, Josh, and in that moment. And just to tag on a little, like you see it, um, I, I've, I've heard it more, at least in films, uh, in the Harry Potter series, probably because death is so prevalent in those, in those, uh, stories. But the idea that even if it's someone you love, they say the dead never really leave us, um, in a way. And, and in this story, you can see it as kind of legacy and, and all those things that, that Mufasa imparted to him. Um, obviously, you know, they want to animate it a little bit more. And um, I don't know if anthropomorphize is really the right term for it. I don't, I don't think that it is. So I don't know why I said that, but, um, but they really take that to a visual, um, a visual standpoint and that um, Mufasa is never really going to be apart from him because in raising Simba, he is given of himself to his son and, um, you know, we can see that in the people around us, you know, what you, um, what's that, what's that quote? I'm, I'm, I'm probably the least ac- academic out of this group. What's the quote? If you seek his legacy, look around you, seek his monument, look around you. Um, uh, and, uh, the, these kind of moments that, uh, where, yeah, um, where we think we've lost somebody, but we really retain a bit of who they are and what they've given us. Yeah, it's it's really a it's really an incredibly moving moment. Um, this both this notion that he hasn't really lost his father, whom his his whole life has been uh, a self recrimination for having lost his father. Right, he hasn't really lost him, and also that he can still be the person that he is meant to be, um, which is you know what what more important thing could we hear? You know. Uh, yeah. uh, on a kind of non-theological plane, you can you can still be the person um, that you're meant to be. I, I you know that that's our fear, right? That's what we're all afraid of is that the moment to be that hero, which is what we all want to be, I think, um, the moment to be that hero has passed, but it hasn't passed. You know, you you you've still got time to turn this around, and, yeah. and you know that there, there's something there's something archetypical almost about that. Um, about that statement and that's why it hits so hard in this movie uh yeah 
to not be defined by our failures um, is a is a is a is a good encouraging thing. There are two lions inside you. There's the there's Scar and there's Mufasa. You feed the good lion, right? <laughs> More or less, yeah. I mean, we cert- we certainly all have to deal with the scar in us as well. I mean, you know, the desire for self-preservation or you know, the desire to um to do what's what's good for for everyone around you that you have the ability to do that for. But that's why I think what Josh said earlier is so insightful and so important that if the Simba we meet at the beginning of this movie had become king, he would have been scar. Because yeah. he, his his impression of what kings do is exactly the sort of um, the sort of kingdom Scar rules over. Yeah, and if I can um, uh, sort of self editorialize here for a minute, um, thinking about that, uh, there, there there's a, a lot about yeah legacy and, and following in your father's footsteps in these uh, in this film, and I mean there's even the moment where he Simba as a cub steps into Mufasa's paw print. And it's, you know, the weight of the shoes he has to fill, so to speak, is is pretty evident to him in that moment. And um, it's 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 a it struck me this way the most recent time I watched it that, you know, he is exiled. He changes. He learns more. He he learns to accept what has happened and learn from his mistakes and come back and. The legacy that he carries, it's it's not, um, it's almost like as Simba, he he has this misconception first of all of who Mufasa is and how he rules, uh, which Mufasa has to correct him on. But also there is this weight. I don't know. It's and it, and it may just be striking me because of how I think about things. You know, I went, I just recently graduated seminary, and and my father was a pastor for for like forty years, and um. Him putting his paw print there and just realizing, like, even how he understands fossil rules or has a better picture of it. He's like, how in the world am I going to be able to be like him? Because he's so amazing, right? And so, but he comes back and the land is different and it's been washed away and it gets reborn and it's new. And it's almost like, yes, he does follow in his father's footsteps by being a king. And by you would presume, because of who we know somebody to be now, a good king. But he's not really ruling the exact same land. Like it's almost like he's getting a chance to start things over, um, and and set things right from the beginning again, um, circle of life, I suppose. But it's uh, but there's almost a an encouragement there that like you know when you're if you were to follow in the footsteps of who came before you, it's not so much this pressure to be exactly like to forge the exact same path they did, but you know they have prepared you for the path that you're going to forge instead. Yeah, and I think I think that. That's his message, right? It's remember who you are. It's not remember who I was, right? Like you remember who I am by remembering yourself. And yeah. so, um, yeah, there is that like, um, you know, we have heroes. We have people who um, we can look to as, you know, um, has having lived the life that we hope to live. And we want to emulate them for sure. But you can only live your own life. You know, you can only do the things that, you know, God has required of you and um, trying to do what someone else has done is, is never going to be a good path either. <laughs> you know, like you have at some point you have to own it. And, yeah, and the, the moment calls for you to do a particular thing. Yeah. 
Right. Right. That's it. Mm. Yeah, there's not there's not one good way to be king. I mean, mm. m- maybe there is, but there's one good way to be king in every moment that you're king, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I've, so I've, I've got a question, but it's, it's, oh, it's, but it's, it's steering in another direction. Uh, I'm just curious what your two opinions are on Hakuna Matata. You know, it's interesting because that's the song everybody remembers from the movie. And it's a false moral. Like, that that moral is kind of like let go with frozen right right yeah, yeah. exactly Stephen. like it ex- it's exactly the same except that um sorry michael you you should go here no no you, you go I ahead just jump in on, well please. i just want to jump in on the frozen thing be- real quickly because and we'll talk about this i'm sure when we get to frozen like let it go is the song of frozen that everyone knows and it's not the moral of frozen but i feel like this movie uh does a slightly better job of negating the Hakuna Matata, <laughs> whereas yeah. Frozen really doesn't. Like it just kind of lets it lets it live. But maybe maybe I'm being too harsh on Frozen. But Although there isn't a like song that does express. I don't think you are. There isn't a song that does express the the moral of this movie. I guess Circle of Life kind of does. Circle so of Life is like a philosophical one. background to the movie. Yeah. Hakuna um, Matata, Matata to me is a um, a less good wonderful phrase. It's a less good version of the bare necessities. Mm. Well spoken. Which the bare necessities also not exactly the message of the jungle book, right? Because he has to leave Baloo in the jungle too. Mm. Um, I don't really like Hakuna Matata. I, I mean, like it's it's catchy and it's cute, but um, and this isn't necessarily Hakuna Matata's fault per se, but. Um, when I was writing it down, this is going to sound, oh gosh, I'm dating myself here, but I wrote down Austin Powers syndrome um, to me, which is what is the phrase I use in my own mind when there is a a pretty, which I'm not going to equate the quality of The Lion King with quality of Austin Powers here. I'm not trying to make a one-to-one comparison. That movie but it's does where, not hold up, by the way. Yeah, I haven't seen it in many years, so Keep maybe it it's tough. Yeah, I probably need to update my analogy vocabulary. Um, but where I always used to think, at least, of Austin Powers is like, you know, a, a, a genuinely – the first one, the first one alone is a genuine, uh, decent spoof of like 70s spy films, right? Um, and – but all that ever came out of that was the – not the incessant pop culture – quotations of the Austin Powers uh, lines of the Dr. Evil lines uh-huh. and all this other stuff to where people forgot like the subtle, the actual subtleties that, that Mike Myers was going to and trying to be funny in that movie. And I feel like there's just so, as you guys have already expressed in this conversation, there's so much depth and richness in this movie. And some kids will be just, and some kids or even grown ups will just be like, Oh, Hakuna Matata. I'm like, you have completely taken the wrong thing from this movie to elevate. Um, yeah, the message of the movie is something like, uh, you need to worry if you're in charge because you have a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's many a lesson worries. we brought. It, it's a uh, <laughs> many worries. Yes, that's the lesson of the Lion King. Um, it's a lesson that they brought back for the teaser trailer for Black Panther, which we already um, brought up, is that uh, you're a good man with a good heart, and it's hard for a good man to be a king. Hmm. 
It's tough out there for an apex predator. That 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 should be the uh, the tagline <laughs> for a Lion King. I think when they get their hands on hustle and flow, they'll probably just change it to that. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that song, but while we're on the subject, I don't think the music in this movie is as good as the music in the last three movies. Uh, well, I guess four. If you, I, I, I am leaving out Rescuers Down Under, which doesn't really have music. Is that um, blasphemous? I know, every, I know, everybody loves the soundtrack to this movie. It's, it's not blasphemous. I've really enjoyed. It. Like, I mean, there's some. It, I guess you're. We're we're talking about Little Mermaid, Aladdin, um, Beauty, and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Well, I'm mean, listen. Those all have some heavy hitters in there. Um, and. The thing is, is that like, and I would say between those four films, like everybody's going to have one that probably resonates closer to them than with others. I would, I would think uh, for me, there is probably one of those other films, either Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin for me would probably have a more consistency of good music. Um, like there's less songs that I don't like, but the songs that I really like the most all come out of the Lion King. Circle of Life um, is, a, is a is an A plus song. Like there's no doubt yeah. about that. It you you That's watch this movie my and, it, one. and it blows you back like a like a jet taking off in your face. That's that's a great song. Um, yeah. But just can't wait to be king. As we've discussed, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Part of Your World or Bell. Uh, yeah. Be prepared is a great. Uh, a great animation piece. I don't think it's a great song. Can you feel the love tonight? Um, well, I, that song makes me feel kind of gross. I, I, I don't, I don't really like it. It's not a bad song. I think the Elton John version is better than the mm. movie version. I think he sings it better than um, the singers do in the, I can't remember the, the people they have subbing the, the sung vocals for uh. Nala and Simba. I, but by and large, I um, I, I just I, I feel like the the music is a step down from what we've been hearing. Josh, what do you think? I think what separates this movie is actually the score rather than mm. the song. Mm. So the Hans I think Zimmer the score. Yeah, so I think the Hans Zimmer score is incredible, and and you really the the place where you get the Hans Zimmer score the most out of those songs you just listed is in Circle of Life like the mm-hmm. the score and the Circle of Life really blend that that um, song is like built to be played in a movie theater like you're supposed to feel it oh yeah absolutely yes. i mean that whole opening sequence is so incredible and so beautiful and like i mean and uh i didn't remember this i probably didn't know it honestly um because of just the age I was, but apparently that whole opening sequence until the boom of the, with the Lion King pops up, like that's what they ran as the trailer for this. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, which is just so great. Like that's just so swing for the fences. Like Disney would never do that these days. Awesome. But if, <laughs> like, if you wanted, if you wanted to prove to somebody that animation was an art form, you could do a whole lot worse than the first five minutes of this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah, like this, like the I mean, stuff it, they do with two D animation, which I I assume was still hand drawn. Yeah, it's the last hand drawn, um, or no, the highest grossing hand drawn animation film. Uh, I don't unbelievable! Was, but... the, the way they have the mist rising off the water in that opening opening scene, I have no idea how you would do that by hand. Yeah, I don't uh, know either. Right. And well, and some and the of the song, camera moves that they do, like with the like the pulling the focus from one mm-hmm. thing to another with the ants crawling by. I mean, it yes. is. Oh my gosh! It is. 
really, really, and, really. Amazing. And the the song is if, the perfect song you, to, to fit that. Yes. If you watch, uh, if you watch the Lion King on Disney Plus in the extras section, um, there is a 37, 35 minute featurette called Pride of the Lion King, which is, um, the, the real MO of it is, is discussing how the success of the film made it to Broadway, but, um, they spend a lot of time talking about the animation and stuff. And they have a lot of interviews with Hans Zimmer and him talking about his motivations to bring the score to life. And, and he was talking even about just the, the themes around, you know, Mufasa's death and stuff like that. And he said he had to come to terms with his own father's death to even, cause it was something he had been suppressing. And he was just talking about, he said, you can't fake music like he just says or it's like when you're producing it and then i mean i'm talking to two musicians here so what do, what do i know but like the, you know you, you can't fake this stuff and and it, or else people are going to know like and and so to be authentic with it you really have to wrestle with with your feelings on it and 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 he apparently just poured that into it and and obviously the entire score is just so emotional um in every single scene um that, it, that it's utilized and yeah i mean there's there's no better opening scene for me in any disney film and maybe almost any film really uh that's a high thing for me to say but at least animated film uh in the beginning of lion king yeah i was trying to think of because as i watched this movie with my family last night and my younger brother said greatest opening ever <laughs> i was like <laughs> trying to think if if i could disagree with him you know not because i wanted to but just like it is super powerful so right yeah but go ahead michael i i um and, and i guess what i would say about the lion king and and understand me this is a really good movie but i don't think the middle half hour of it lives up to the first half hour of it and I, I think that's true of the songs. I think it's true of the writing. I think it's true of the animation. Almost everything. It's like it's like they they came in so strong that it suffers a little bit once once Mufasa dies. Um, the the movie kind of uh, gets a little shaggy for me. Does that make sense? Am I am I being crazy? I hear what you're saying. You know, honestly, that part of the film really goes by went by a lot more quickly for me this time, and I think it's just because. I mean, it might be because of what you're saying. It's, it's, it's my least involved part of the film for me. Um, I'm, at, at least it, it picks, I should say this. It, it dips, you know, once he leaves and, and Scar rises to power, uh, for me. Um, but it picks up as soon as Rafiki reenters the film, um, for me. So, so it's not completely before he comes back to the Pride Lands that I'm already reinvested. Um, but even that, it's kind of like, it's, it's like I used to say to Tim when we would do Night Cheese episodes. It's like picking, like picking a bad Pixar movie is like, I mean, you're really just splitting hairs. Right. Like, so like me saying the film takes a dip. It's, it's, it's not like we're talking about, you know. We're talking about the difference works, between an A plus movie and an A movie. So, so right. like, I think Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty are both A plus movies. I don't think there's a bad frame in either one of them. But um, other than the, some of the CGI and Beauty and the Beast. But th- this movie, I do feel like it, there's some really great stuff in it. But ultimately, it's an A or an A minus movie because of that middle third. And, and the songs are part of that. Uh, if, if it had a really great song anchoring it, I think, um, I think it probably could have picked up from that. But it, it, it doesn't. Hakuna Matata is, is kind of an annoying song that that got passed around a lot in the mid nineties. And yes, Can You Feel the Love Tonight is an okay song. The version of it in the movie is not that good. It's not sung very well. And so I don't 
it, it, it fails to provide me with the, the kind of emotional center that it's meant to be there for. Yeah. I disagree, though. It, I, I put this in my top tier of Disney movies, and I think part of it is the stuff that we've already said, like all, all the things that we've talked about, about the the depth and the richness of it. Like I think it kind of covers some of that that other stuff up for me like and and i think i'm just not as annoyed by some of those things as you are like i i akuna matata you're right it's not the moral song but like it's it's fine and i actually like scar's song a lot like i think it's it is um uh you know when we were talking about aladdin you talked about like multiple songs happening at the same same time and that's how i kind of feel about that song like it's got so much shoved in there that shouldn't seemingly work together um with like the the heavy military marching but also like these like uh i don't know like um mbappi background (laughs) (laughs) from the from the hyenas and uh there's you know there's some some uh african rhythms and that sort of uh um, like the wood marimba type instruments, you know, uh, that that play a prominent role for a little while. Like it's like this this stuff shouldn't work together, and sometimes somehow for me it does. I know it's not working for you, Michael. But the, the sequence and, is, is know, outrageously good. So I, I, I mean, again, again, I just don't think it works as a song. But the the, the the whole context of it's great. Can I also say too? Again, um, a lot of why be prepared works for me too is Jeremy Irons. He was great as scar like he's a, just a great villain um you know what I, we I, found out last night that he is an oxfordian he believes that shakespeare's plays were written by the earl of oxford and i'm not sure that i can praise him anymore because that's a stupid opinion <laughs> well he dies in the end so that's, i mean and that's probably why if he had been a stratfordian nobody would right simba tried to spare him but you know his mouth got him in trouble don't turn on your supporters they'll eat you alive um so the thing about can you feel the love tonight why it does doesn't offend me as much i'm not gonna say that i that i love it or that it's even the it's certainly not the best romance song out of all those um previous films i mean my, my personal favorite is a whole new world out of all those but um the reason why it doesn't bother me um, and is that it kind of, the film kind of reminds me of some of my favorite um, childhood movies like Back to the Future and The Karate Kid in that there's a romantic element in the film that's kind of unnecessary huh. because the, because the primary relationship is between a younger person and an older person huh. as, a, as, as a friendship. The, the real heart and emotion of the movie is between Simba and Mufasa for me, not Simba and Nala. So I don't feel the need to be, you I don't feel, feel the need the to tonight. feel the love tonight. I don't feel the need. To, I don't feel compelled to feel the love tonight. Um, just like Marty and, and uh, whatever his girlfriend's name was, Jennifer, Jennifer. come on. And, and Daniel and Daniel son and, and Allie, you know, uh, or whatever girl he was dating. And that's in each sequel. But like, you know, I felt it was just tack. It was almost like tacked on. I mean, it wasn't really tacked on so much in, in this story, but it wasn't the primary relationships. It didn't bother me so much. We, something else needs to be said about that sequence, which is when, um, when Wesley was on talking about the Fox and the Hound, he wanted to talk about the, the top horny moments in Disney movies. And my oh, no. God, the, can you feel the love tonight sequence made me highly uncomfortable at age 12. And I think it still makes me uncomfortable. Well, they had to explain that lion cub in the last shot of the movie somehow, Michael. Did, I, like it, 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 
I, I'm not going to say it's unnecessary, but it, uh, <laughs> it, it's uncomfortable. Uh, like that's a, um, it's, it's one quick shot that, that look in Nala's eyes is a little weird. It's not a quick shot either. Like it, 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 it focuses on her for three or four seconds. It goes on for a long time. She licks his face. <laughs> I, I I just I'm not sure I wanted to seek a cartoon of lions mating. That's all. Yeah, it is it is uncomfortable. I think what I will I will say in defense of this this whole sequence is, um, and I can't remember where exactly it, it starts, so I'd have to watch the movie again. But like Simba has to kind of relearn how to be a lion because he left. Uh, lion kind you know and a woman is there to teach him to be a man well i, I you could you could <laughs> say it that way but the way i was thinking of it was more because i do remember work who he is yeah <laughs> no because i i work in these like cross-cultural contexts you know and so there's this thing called a hidden immigrant where you're you're in your own culture like you're surrounded by your own people but you actually don't know how to behave with them like you look like them so no one would think of you as an immigrant but you're not them because you've grown up somewhere else and so all of your life experiences are somewhere else and i really get that sense particularly in this part when he's he like he's grown up swimming and she has nothing to do with it you know he pulls her into the water and she gets out and looks at him like you have gone insane like who who are you and I don't know. I, I think there's something really um, Josh? touching there, not from the romantic side, but just from like kind of the cross-cultural stuff. Josh raises a really interesting point because um, one of the few, not many, but um, one of the few interesting things about the live adaptation is there's a scene before that before Nala arrives on the scene where adult Simba is trying to frolic and play with an antelope in the jungle, and the antelope is freaked out. And well, like yeah. runs aw- and runs away, and Timon and Pumbaa come up to him. They're like, "Yeah, I don't. We need to remind you that you're a predator, and he's never going to want to play with you." <laughs> and he's like, "Well, that's weird." And like, but he's been raised in a completely different setting at this point, and has for- and has forgotten who he is. I'm going to tell a much less interesting story, which is that I once saw lions mating, and it was not romantic. We were at the Birmingham Zoo. <laughs> And uh, the the lion enclosure there, you're behind about 18 inches of glass. And Victoria and I are standing there, and this lion, um, he, he, the lioness is sleeping, and he goes over and smacks her and wakes her up. And then he looks at us. He makes eye contact with us and roars. <laughs> like, he, you know, so, so, I mean, he's trying to get us out of there. And as we're turning the corner, we hear the lioness scream. So I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that we witnessed a real life, can you feel the love tonight? He just biff tanned you. He's like, this ain't no peep show. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Get out of here. It's amazing. Yeah. I really felt like I was part of something special. Yeah. Well, also, you no know. one wants to. No one wants to watch dogs eat spaghetti, Michael. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the setting has something to do with it, and I'm sure Birmingham is probably not the most romantic place to. Uh, I know. think it's a place a lot of You'll, lions go to to I, to you know heat up their marriage again. To get some new sparks. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys. Um, hey, Josh. Did you um? Just because I, I was um 
picking up on points from y'all's last episode. Did you ever play the uh, Lion King video game? I was so yes. hoping we were going to talk about the impossibly <laughs> difficult Lion King video game. The it same, really was. The same it? for the I Nintendo use, and, the, and the Genesis. I had to yeah. use cheat codes to get to the end. Yeah, you couldn't hop across the giraffes, right, to save your life? Yes. I think I still have flashbacks during that scene in the movie of uh-huh. I just can't wait to be where he's hopping across the giraffes and I'm like I'm gonna he's gonna die he's gonna die. You know they did that on right. purpose so that you wouldn't be able to beat the game while you were renting it. So you would have to buy the game. <laughs> Are you serious? That sounds like an urban legend. The, the ostrich the ostrich ride akin to the Battletoads uh, level. Well, two. nothing is as hard as Battletoads level okay. three. It's not. So Lion King, that version of Lion King and the Sega Genesis version of Aladdin uh, were released together. Uh, they were re-released late last year, and so you can now play the. I bought them for my Switch. Really? Uh, oh, they're on the yeah. Switch? Yeah, they're on the Switch. Oh, I'm going to have to show my kids. Okay. Yeah, maybe other platforms, but I don't care about other platforms, so I don't know for sure. But uh, yeah, you can you can get Aladdin and, and Lion King. And as Michael said, by the time Lion King came out, it was actually the same game ported to both systems. Whereas mm-hmm. we talked last uh, episode about Aladdin having been actually created by two different companies, yes. Cap- Capcom and Virgin, uh, right. I think, were uh, the two different ones, but... Anyway, Michael, what else did you want to say about uh, the Lion King video game since you were hoping we'd get here? <laughs> uh, well, well, one thing I noticed watching the movie, because I've played the game hundreds of times more than I've seen the movie, and like a lot of the, st- almost all the stuff from the game is right out of the movie. The bugs and everything else. Yeah, having to use your uh, baby roar to incapacitate uh, villains before jumping on their head. Well, the, not, not so much the jumping on the head, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> you have to incapacitate little chameleons, don't you? <laughs> I, I, yeah, the, there is a chameleon, like the one, like the one, yeah, like um, the one in the before in the, the wildebeest before scene. the wildebeest come. And in, in fact, the wildebeest scene that I remember in the game looks exactly like the one in the movie. The the one in the movie really looks like you're controlling a video game in a mm. good way. I don't mean that in a negative way. That was really a uh, a golden age for. Uh, for branded video games in my opinion it really it really was maybe that's what we should do next uh josh is just play through all the capcom video games yeah that's a great idea <laughs> people would love that <laughs> you think i have trouble talking about music uh wait till you hear what i have to say about gameplay <laughs> um speaking of the music real quick when we i forgot to say this in circle of life but it was just something i learned uh today there is um one of the contributors uh to the music is a, a guy by the name of lebo m uh, who sang the opening melody that they gave you know when the sun rises um i'm not even going to attempt to replicate it um so but apparently the story behind that recording is that uh Zimmer um, had been trying to get in touch with him for weeks and like he had just fallen out of communication and the studio was coming that day to, I guess, hear the cut or something. And he arrived 30 minutes before they were supposed to get there and nailed that opening line in one take. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it is for me anyways, as a listener, like hearing him, hearing him get that. And he said there, he said there's, there was, there's only one take of that performance. And he, it was the first one and he, and he, and he nailed it. And then they came in and heard it and they're like, this is perfect. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. Pretty crazy stuff. Well, speaking of the sounds in this movie, I also I've we've talked about the score and the music, but I also just wanted to talk about some of the sound design in general. Like, um, I mean, most obviously there's the big boom when the Lion King titles first appear, but I felt like throughout the movie, like they they really up the, the sound design um, from what we've seen in the past with you know just. I, I don't. I don't even know how to how to talk about this. So maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. But I don't know. This this movie just sounds great to me. Yeah. It really does. I mean, it's just um, think of some of the sound effects and everything, and and just the yeah. I mean, it's it all feel you know, especially for that time too. Just felt so. I don't know. Authentic feels like a weird word considering it's a movie about talking lions, but still, it it. Um, yeah, like it just felt so, so much more like an immersive experience, especially, I mean, for, for me compared to some of the other ones. I mean, which it wasn't, which the other ones weren't bad either. Like, I mean, um, but it's just, um, just really effective. Yeah, it really takes it to a different level. I, I don't know. It feels more cinematic somehow than yes. a lot of the movies we've been watching. And I mean, obviously, I love animated films i mean i'm doing i'm you know three years into a podcast about them um, with like three more years to go but um we're like I, I don't know that this this movie just felt like a different level and i think a lot of it is in the in the score and the sound design um it's just different than what we have seen at least since you know the original you know three or four movies when they were really going for you know to be cinema um i just i just don't feel like we've seen this level of of touch and and care um in the sound design it's one of those subtle things that just it's like i said it's hard to it's hard to talk about but it just really made this movie feel different to me than than a lot of what we've seen did either of you Mm -hmm. see this on the imax re-release in the first decade of the 21st century no but that sounds like it would have been fantastic yeah, it's, it, it kind of seems like it was, the whole thing was... I was trying to find out if they released it to IMAX when the movie first came out, but I don't think they did that with um, with regular movies. It would have been then. 94, yeah. I, I don't know that they would have done that either. But what's what's amazing is this movie that has all this beautiful animation, the songs, the, the sound design, everything else that clearly they worked so hard on. This was supposed to be a B picture leading <laughs> up to the obvious greatness of Pocahontas. Obviously. The colors of the wind, Michael. And I mean, I think we'll I think we'll find next month that Pocahontas is not a terrible movie, but it's it's I I think you would have to be, um, you well you'd have to be a very different person than I am to uh, to think that that was a better movie than this. Was this the net? Was Pocahontas the next one in line? Yeah, I always get it confused with like Mulan and the others. Okay, yeah. Well, listen, I mean, again. We're talking about a string of really good films anyways, but let, let's not pretend there's not a noticeable decline. Well, I yeah, mean, I mean, this is know. this is the peak, right? I think, uh, right? I think a lot of people would agree. And then yeah. then it's downhill for a while, for a yeah, long absolutely. while. Yeah, this is definitely the peak of the Renaissance. I mean, I, I would say, and I think, like you said, Michael, most people would say, we do have several good movies coming up ahead of us. And some weird um, movies. And, and weird, some weird, weird movies. Is good. Yeah, we are we are on board with weird here. Definitely, before they were live, we liked the weird. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, it is the and uh, yeah, it's it is. I mean, we mentioned you mentioned this earlier, Stephen. The way it it is the B team 
Um, people people were counting on Pocahontas. People wanted to work on Pocahontas because they thought it was going to be the film that created a legacy, and I, I just don't think it created a legacy the way that The Lion King did. And it's it's kind of you know it's it's funny how it's it's the it's the underdog story a little bit you know which Disney is so well known for <laughs> it's the underdogs but it, it really, really is. is it's the underdog animators coming coming through and creating uh, this this breathtaking and awe inspiring movie. Um, I don't I don't know if this is is technically another Katzenberg story or not, but it sure sounds like one once you hear me get to the end of it. Um, and I'm not going to try to pretend like Elton John is any kind of underdog either. But he was not the first person they went to either um, for for assistance in the music. Apparently, I'm just going to say Katzenberg because after hearing the stories you guys have told and what I've shared, it just tracks. Um, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Sure. But initially, they wanted ABBA to help. Oh my gosh. Which I can't even imagine the darkest timeline universe that would create a Lion King that was, that part of the music was penned by ABBA. Um, but uh, it's, I, I can't even, I can't wrap my brain around that. But ABBA. Um, yeah. Well, cause I was going to say Elton John was not at the height of his popularity in the early 90s. He, I mean, he, he, he was kind of in the middle of a comeback, but I don't think he was producing what anybody would call his best music. No, he didn't have his major comeback. I mean, I'm not trying to sound cynical here, but until Princess Diana died. Well, th- this was this was part of that. And that was he had a, he had a, he had a big hit in the early '90s uh, called "The One," oh. and then then that led to him doing this, and then this led to him doing "Aida," which was a Broadway hit, and and then he he kind of had a had a pop music comeback after that. Mm. But I mean, certainly he was not making. Um, Essential music in 1994. Wasn't Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me somewhere in there? No, that's from the 70s. Okay. He might have re-released it or something. He did. There was a there was a re-released version with, I think, George Michael. Okay. Yeah, My favorite Elton John story is, um, I can't remember what talk show Billy Joel was on. I think, I want to say he was Letterman, but it, it may not have been. So um, I'll have to try and find the clip later. But uh, anyway, the, the, the talk show host says to Billy Joel, he says, why didn't, why didn't you ever make more albums? Your friend Elton John thinks you should have. And Billy Joel says, yeah, and I think he should have made less. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the thing about Elton is uh, if you listened to adult contemporary radio, uh, for the next five years, you were sure to hear, uh, can you hear the love tonight or can you feel the love tonight over and over and over again? It, it was, a, it was a huge pop hit for him. Yeah. I didn't, um, I mean, I'm grateful for his involvement cause I mean, obviously he's, he's a prolific musician and stuff, but I, I don't know his, his radio singles of both of those, um, both of those songs never did a thing for me. Um, but then again, Can You Feel the Love Tonight was always just kind of present for me. And nothing will touch the the cinematic impact of Circle of Life for me. So trying to do a radio version of that just didn't didn't do anything for me. Yeah. Can you feel the love tonight is kind of that it's it's the same moment um that's in Robin Hood when the um you know, there there's the there's the soft love sequence song. Um, that we always fast forwarded through as kids. <laughs> yeah, <Right. laughs> get to the uh, action. Yeah, get back to the action. I like that song now, though. It's, it's my taste for '70s soft rock deepens. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. Well, it was the fantastic Mr. Fox that re- redeemed that song for me. When I heard it in there, I was like, oh, this is actually a good song. Why did I always fast forward through it? Recontextualized. Yes, recontextualized. But I think it is, um, there is some spaciousness and breathing room in this movie um, that, you know, we talked about this specifically with Rescuers Down Under, where I just didn't feel like there was any breathing room in that movie. It was just action, 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 action. And so as much as I fast forwarded through that stuff as a child, I think now it makes for a much stronger movie. And I think they learned a lot of lessons from that movie um, because, you know, they have the huge... Um, impactful stuff like the you know that that opening sequence, but it's so much better and bigger than what Rescuers was doing, and it's also offset by more you know uh, subtleties of you know like you mentioned the mist, uh, the way the sunrise looks, um, and there, there's moments like that throughout the film where they really like peel back from the story for a minute and just kind of let you. Um, feel like you're you're part of this environment that's it's really really nicely done and the other thing i I have only one more thing that that i had in my notes that i really wanted to get to was just i think the other thing that makes this movie really good that the the to to again like type these uh b you know this the b animators or whatever is um i think because they the they had to learn how to draw animals um as animals Mm -hmm. but then they do so much of the emotional work in the in the face then because these are these are realistic animal bodies so all the emotions we have to kind of see in the face which um you know it creates a more subtlety in the in the acting but i think that that creates a stronger acting than the the big broad movements that sometimes you see in animation like it has to really be be smaller and and there's a lot of great facial work in this in this movie yeah, I and I I thought the the animation as animals was really really good. There's very little anthropomorphism in terms of the movements of them. You know, I don't spend a lot of time watching lions, but they move like cats do. I mean, it looks mm. it looks real to me. Well, I was sitting here just trying to think off the top of my head. Like, I mean, you probably see elements of it in things, but I was just trying to think back of some of the other Disney films that um, that star animals as their protagonists and was this one of the first ones that had predominant i mean for the most part predominantly every animal actually moving like an animal instead of a person bambi yeah bambi okay yeah because i say that was one of my biggest criticisms against dreamworks um uh as as an opposing thing is like i I think back to when like finding nemo and shark tale both came out at the same time and like those films were like just like you had on one film you had a fish that was like standing upright and i'm like this is i feel like this is one of the reasons why one of the many reasons i can't get into this film but the way that they're able to still pull off a really impactful story and stuff by staying and still most for the most part staying true to the true nature of the animals as well yeah it's not 100 percent necessary because i mean jungle book is a great movie and i mean there's elements of you know, Shere Khan definitely moves like a lion, but uh, Baloo doesn't move like a bear at all, right? Baloo right. is like basically a human. So, I mean, the, the, I don't, I don't know exactly what the the secret sauce is that makes it 
it good. Um, but right. Definitely, but definitely this one. That's <laughs> Whatever certainly... that secret sauce is, they definitely nailed it with this one. And I know, like, certainly they were they were trying to echo some of what they saw in Bambi. And I, I yeah. still feel like Bambi is is the best of of the entire canon. Like oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I that's I mean it's just my absolute favorite. But yeah, uh, and I certainly wasn't trying to be dogmatic about it because I mean I I have a real soft spot in my heart for Robin Hood. We were talking about you were know, talking about Robin Hood just a second ago as well, and like I mean that's nothing like anything either, you know. But um, I mean you know you've got a lion wearing a robe and a crown in that one, so it's, it's um, but you know I, I I think you're right, Josh. Though is whatever the secret is, they they certainly nailed it, especially in those those two examples. There's not a there's not a hard and fast rule for how this stuff works, right? It's whatever it's it, like being king. It's whatever whatever the moment demands, and so right. I, I I think Disney runs into problems when they have a successful film and then they decide uh, all our films now have to look just like that, or or when they have an unsuccessful film and they say, well, we'll never do anything like that again. Yeah, learning the wrong lesson. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, even a little bit you could see that in this because, um, I mean, Michael, you were arguing that of the musicals, it's like as a musical, I agree with you. It is it is a weaker musical than Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. You know, like if if that was all that we were looking at was as a musical, and obviously, you know, that's just one of its components. But it wasn't originally going to be a musical, but all you know, all these other musicals are hitting really hard, and so it was actually originally going to be directed by the same guy who did Oliver and Company, and then he he left it because he didn't want to do a musical. Oh um, well, let's be glad he left it, huh? Yeah, amazing. We, so. we could have had Billy Joel instead of Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But I mean, yeah. So I don't. I, I guess that cut, that knife cuts both ways too. You know, like. Thankfully, they made this a musical because they saw, like, oh, this is this is where um, we're really finding success right now. Like, we we know how to do musicals, and um, and so that really worked out. But at some point, you're right. Like, you you um, what that well runs dry, but you're you're still trying to pull buckets out of it. So, thankfully, the well hadn't run dry yet on on the musical on the musical yet. Yeah. Before, um, as I say, before you guys go in, there's really no probably organic place for me to drop this, but I just wanted to share a piece of trivia that I learned uh, that I realized about myself is that the first time I watched this movie, um, well, not the first time I watched it, but later on in life, once I started putting two and two together with the cast, um, I didn't realize uh, that Zazu was Mr. Bean. I um, certainly it, had never heard of Mr. Bean when this movie came out. Yeah, it wasn't until like, but it wasn't until like years later after I knew who Mr. Bean was that I had gone back and seen The Lion King again for some reason, um, and I started you know like trying to look up like who the cast was, and I'm like, oh, so that's what his voice sounds like. I had never even heard him speak. Oh, sure, and I of seen course. him in any other roles. Yeah, he's in uh, Love yeah. Actually too. That's right. Oh, <laughs> a steal- scene stealer in that movie for sure. What's the other one that he's in? The Rat Race? Is that what that yes. movie is? Yes. Yes, he's also in Rat Race. Yeah. I have not seen that movie in probably two decades, but I, I really enjoyed it at the time. <laughs> I have no idea how it's held up. Yeah, they replaced him with uh, John Oliver in the live action, um, which 
it's probably, I mean, as far as, as for all the misgivings that the live action ones, uh, adaptations have, that was actually pretty well maintained. Yeah, that's, um, not a, that's not a bad choice. Yeah. He didn't feel like John Oliver being John Oliver, you know what I mean? I like Zazu. I think he's the best part of uh, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Yeah. I agree with that. No, the best part is the anteaters and they, the, when they're being sat on and it, it makes that, like, um, whatever that toy is with the, the rollout, um, oh. like, blow on it. <laughs> That's the, the best part. You know, I, I actually love the final shot of just the, the rhino sitting alone on Madam? the planes. <laughs> Get off! I, I need to say something about The Lion King that I, I think is important. Um, which is that this movie is vulgar in a way that no Disney movie we've seen up to this point has been vulgar. There's a lot of fart jokes, and I I feel like that would become de rigueur in in animated films from here on out. You you can hardly make an animated movie now without somebody farting on somebody, and uh, I blame The Lion King for that. Uh, I, I, I blame it for that just as I blame uh, Aladdin for the celebrity voice actor. Uh, it, it Something something changed after this movie and not for the better. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think I, I think it's a great point. Like, you can push the envelope, but unfortunately when you push the envelope and, and sometimes then, you know, that that just opens it for other people to to really make make it a problem, so... And it's funny. I think in this movie it actually works. Like it's it's funny and it, um, yeah, like it. Uh, they they play with the fact that they know they're pushing the envelope. Like they they break the fourth wall during Akuna Matata right. in order to not let him finish the rhyme of hearted and farted, you know. Um, but yeah, it is it is a problem, Michael. I agree. Well, thank you. I, I, don't, I don't know that the reward of of the jokes in this movie is worth the the cost to animation going forward after this. I think that's kind of where it starts, right? Like, you know, every, every single, you know, every bad, um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know, every, uh, uh, the trend, um, you know, has its starting point that doesn't seem like that big of a deal because like it's, I, I would agree with what you said about Aladdin with Robin Williams, but also like, I have no idea who else could have right. pulled that off either, right. you know? Well, I mean, to be fair, Frank Oz, is that who I'm thinking of? You know, like, I mean, like somebody like that could have done it, but like, I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg thing. Like they got Robin Williams and then decided to make the genie, this impersonation machine, or if they, or if it was the other way around, you know? But, um, but and then that with the Lion King, like it's kind of like Josh said, like I think those things in a vacuum work for themselves. But then you know you have people kind of learning the wrong lesson from those and and um, not knowing the sort of nuance of exercising restraint um, in certain in certain times and stuff. And 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 then you end up with a I don't know I don't know with the bat with Shrek I guess um, <laughs> eventually um, or Shrek too, Michael. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I will say that I laughed in uh, I Just Can't Wait to Be King when all they're walking through this like uh, gauntlet of zebras and all the zebras bow down to Simba and then when Simba passes they all turn their backside to Zazu and he, yes. he eyes them very warily. I thought that was a great bit of facial <laughs> animation for Zazu. 
man. But uh, this... yeah, the, this this movie really opened the door to vulgarity in children's animated films. In um in terms of though of facial uh, emotion and stuff as well, this is really more of a less of a, a humorous moment, more of a sincere one. But towards the end, where um, Scar demands that Simba's mother Sarabi present herself to account for why there's no food, and she is flanked on each side by all these like sort of jeering hyenas and stuff that are snapping at her, she walks past them with her head up high, and mm-hmm. like even in that moment, she is not. She refuses to show any intimidation, um, despite the fact that, you know, she's pretty much living in a hell for herself, um, which I just thought, you know, in its own way, in its own meek sort of way, is, is pretty hardcore. Yeah. I won't, I, I won't give you the satisfaction of thinking you're intimidating me. That's a, that's a nice moment. Well, anything, uh, anything else? That we haven't mentioned. I think I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm think I'm all tapped out myself. Thanks for uh, coming on and overanalyzing this movie with us, Stephen. Hey, I'm good for overanalysis whenever whenever you need it. Uh, but really, thanks for thanks for inviting me. I mean, you know, talking about movies is one of my favorite things to do, and um, it's even better when it gets to meet up with some old friends. So thanks for having me guys. And our listeners who haven't listened to night cheese would be well advised to go do so. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on, um, iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere where you, where you can get a podcast. It's night cheese. Uh, when you look on Apple's podcast, just look for the picture of Liz lemon. Um, that's ours, our night cheese. Apparently during our hiatus, a few other imposter night cheeses came up, but we're still the most current one. Um, so, we try to drop once a week when we can. And so, uh, yeah, check us out. Awesome. Well, over here at the Christian Humanist Network, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and also at christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us on Twitter. Stephen is at SP Sandridge. Michael is at Quellbummer. And I'm at the underscore alt. We want to encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. We know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer and Stephen Sandridge, I'm Josh Altman Schofer, reminding you to put your behind in your past. <laughs>